Welcome to Listen by Jean Ginsberg. This audio experience and podcast is all about social media, digital marketing, entrepreneurship, and interviews with top entrepreneurs in the digital and social space. I'm your host, Jean Ginsberg, digital marketing expert, number one best-selling author, and award-winning entrepreneur. I will be sharing with you strategies, tips, and tactics on how to grow your business and your social media following. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Very excited today because now we have two people on the podcast, Andrew and Morgan from BeatDav. And we've never had two people on the podcast. I was just saying earlier before we started recording, but um very excited to have both of you here. How's it going? Good, thanks. Uh, you know, Morgan and I love talking about ourselves, so we're excited to do it. Well, I think that's <laughs> usually our first question is to give our audiences some context about you and your background and how we got to, you know, where you are now. Maybe you guys can take a couple minutes each and share some of your background. All right. Um, where to begin? Uh, I'm Canadian. I grew up in a small town in, on the West Coast of Canada. Uh, fast forwarding to the career portion of my life. I started actually as a lobbyist, and my first client was the music industry, which was kind of an interesting way to find yourself in music. Um, so my primary responsibility was to try and extend copyright protection in Canada from 50 to 70 years on behalf of the major music labels. And so we were working on that for a number of years, successful eventually, um, uh, which was a massive win for the industry. And I think that sort of started the fire um, for me as uh, you know, wanting to stay in music over the course of my career. Um, things don't always work exactly as you think they will. So as opposed to staying in music immediately, I went on to a telecommunications company and did government relations for them for a number of years, um, and then moved out to Los Angeles, uh, got some exposure to sort of tech and marketing um, through a couple of different jobs there. Uh, Andrew and I, who go back to grad school together, had the idea for BeatDap somewhere along the way during that period in LA. Um, and in a sort of coming full circle moment, it let us put together both our early career experience in music our love for tech and our, you know, I think pretty firm conviction that eventually we wanted to work together. So um, there's a lot of things I've skipped over along that that path, but sort of the 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 one thing that's true is that it's it's not linear, but it did end up where I think we ultimately hoped it would for I think for both of us. You'll hear Andrew's side of the story, and maybe he'll he'll say otherwise. But um, I'm thankful to be working in music and to be doing this uh, at BTAP with with friends and a team that feels like uh, feels like family at this point. Yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, I second that, you know, Morgan and I knew we wanted to work together pretty early. We'd consulted on some other projects. Um, I, this, this is my fifth company. I've, I've sort of done four other ones and, and exited a few times. I think that um, uh, I never wanted to come back to music, but I was everyone's weird, you know, uh, crypto friend, which will come into like later when we ask to talk about why our, why our business made sense with blockchain and stuff. But, um, you know, I love the music industry. Sometimes I, I used to work on the artist side opposite of Morgan. So I didn't have the luxury of working on the executive or the business side. We worked with a lot of artists doing artist promotion. And, uh, you know, sometimes that can be really tapping with managing egos and managing sort of like artists in general. And so um, when I left the music industry, we'd sold our company in 2011. I was just not super eager to go back to the music industry in general. But I think this opportunity presented something that was a massive problem that I thought we could solve. And 
and, you know, building tech and working with one of my best friends it kind of all came together. And, and I think that depth of relationship, no one ever really talks about this, I think, but Morgan and I have been friends with each other a long time. And we'd worked on a lot of projects and things together. Even in university, we were on a traveling case team. So sometimes you just need someone you can scream at and know that there's an unconditional love there, no matter what, that like, even if you mess up, no one's taking their ball and going home. Uh, Cause there's plenty of times I've messed up and Morgan's probably wanted to choke me out. And there's times that I get frustrated, but there's just like mutual respect and admiration and sort of just uh, brotherhood maybe that um, that depth of relationship has really let us get through a lot of really, you know, difficult times as a company and, you know, scary moments when you're building startups. So I think um, I'm glad I have a partner like Morgan to do this with. Uh, and it's been a, a challenging but rewarding experience. And I can't imagine, you know, working for somebody else at this point, you know, doing, doing something else. So it's been good. That's awesome. That's good to hear because, you know, sometimes you always hear the the other stories, right, of where things, uh, you know, two good friends started a company and things blew up and yada, yada, yada. So yeah, for that's, sure. um, that's good to hear that the relationship is strong and uh, which, you know, would lead to a, a, a strong organization. Um, speaking of which, tell us a little bit more about the organization. So when we first started, the we were talking to a label and the, the, the premise or the problem they presented was we have no idea how many times a song is played on streaming services. So they might say our artist did 100 million streams. We don't actually know that to be true. No one knows if the number that they're getting in the reports is accurate. It's the first time in the music industry that the labels don't control distribution. And so when they go in an audit, they have an audit provision typically every three years. It can take them up to two years to audit. So they go and pull the server logs, they start matching it to the songs that were played, uh, that they were told were played, and there's always a discrepancy. Like in the you know 50 plus audits, not once was it accurate. So the problem presented to us was, we don't know that there's an inaccuracy really for five years. So we're negotiating, this is back in 2018, uh, for 2013 royalties, which have already been paid out. So now we're trying to ask for money additional to what's already been paid, we get pennies on the dollar. We need a real-time assurance product. We need something that can tell us the reports we've gotten at the beginning of this month are accurate or they're not, so they can be fixed at the start so that we aren't trying to reconcile that five years later. That was the initial problem. They believed blockchain was the solution because they felt like it was a trust problem. DSPs didn't trust the labels to own this. Labels didn't trust the DSPs to own it. They really need a third-party source of truth saying this is the count. We went and built that. We built one of the world's fastest blockchains that could do 10 million transactions per second per region. I mean, we're like the Ferrari of blockchains and we built it from the ground up, our own proprietary chain, proved the stress test. What it didn't tell us and what we learned through the process was if Andrew's playing a song and I'm on the right revenue generating tier in the right location, uh, you know, we agree. The streaming service says, Andrew, this play counts. The label says, Andrew, this play counts. And BDAP says, hey, we see Andrew, this play counts. And that's happening in real time. What it doesn't tell you is if Andrew played that song 33,000 times in a week, Andrew's a bot because that's impossible. So what it didn't give you, gave you this binary blockchain tells you the play occurred or didn't, but it didn't add context to whether that play should be paid or if it was suspicious. So in order to be good at audit, we actually had to be good at fraud detection. And we didn't know that going in because we solved the technical problem first. Now it was like, how do we solve for fraud? And so what we do today and what most of our business is focused around was this fraud problem. Because what we learned is that fraud is a massive problem that's at least 10% of global streams. And so when you talk about a uh, annualized issue, 
you're talking about upwards of $2 billion that gets going, that goes to the wrong people every year. So, you know, one to $2 billion misallocated because of fraud, because if, if the streaming number goes up, the aggregate number, the pro rata payouts get shifted for everyone. So if, and if Andrew does a hundred million streams normally out of, out of, you know, uh, a billion, I should get 10% of the revenue generating pool. But if suddenly the bots have taken it to 2 billion, I only get 5%. So my payouts are dramatically reduced by that, by those bots running stream counts up. So where we thought initially we were solving for fraud and it was going to be one to 3%, that number ended up shifting closer to a 10% aggregate on global streams, which became a massive problem for us to solve. So today we are the leading industry standard for fraud detection, uh, which includes, you know, perception-based fraud, uh, financial fraud, bots, account takeovers, and people's accounts have been hacked. But we are really the sort of streaming police to make sure that the fraudulent streams are discounted from the total payouts. And we've worked now directly with the DSPs and helping them identify fraud and remove those counts for before they get paid out for all the, the royalties. Morgan, did I miss anything there? That was pretty comprehensive. That was the whole history in, in two minutes. That was That was well done. Cool. Um, and are you saying like fraud for all kinds of digital industries or just music? Music specifically. I mean, okay. there are parallels. And certainly when we started thinking about what types of products and particularly what types of models we would need to build, we were able to look at the history of fraud on the internet as sort of guideposts for what we were trying to do. Um, ultimately, music, it's a relative in music, it's a relatively new phenomena. Um, but in the broader world of, you know, online industries, fraud basically stems from the earliest days of anybody making money on the internet. Someone was trying to find a way to, you know, take their cut. So we could look at banking and e-commerce and digital advertising and, you know, even some of the newer fads like uh, uh, fake reviews on Amazon and fake sales reps on LinkedIn. Um, they're all sort of instructive and guiding in how people use the same tools to sort of chase different um, to, to obtain revenues or whatever in different sort of fraudulent ways. And so that was that was helpful because it wasn't sort of a blank page. We kind of were able to look at some companies that had developed in other verticals and say, okay, what do they do and how does this, you know, apply to or not apply to music? Right. And a question about, so is, it sounds like it's some sort of blockchain platform that allow, like, what is the back yeah. end of how we're, you're doing the fraud detection? It started as blockchain and then uh, moved away from blockchain. So we built the world's fastest blockchain and then realized that that didn't tell us if the number should count or not. So most of our business today is just like hundreds of machine learning models that are detecting and predicting what, uh, you know, what is fraud and what's not fraud. We also have the highest uh, or the lowest false positive rates. So the highest accuracy, lowest false positives, because we train every single one of our models on new data sets. So when we get a new provider and we don't just copy paste and turn it loose. We actually retrain all of our models in that specific provider because the one thing you can't do in music is penalize super fans. So, or penalize like true advocates who might just be listening to that consumption a lot, who would look like an outlier with a normal model, but is a total like standard practice for a fan that's hyper engaged that is like really your, your true believer. And so we have to make sure that we are very careful when we call stuff fraud, that it's absolutely certain fraud. And so we've taken extra precautions to make sure that those false positives are as low as we can, um, as low as we can get and be the industry sort of standard for that. Um, but most of our tech today is 
like machine learning algorithms and predictive models identifying fraud and all kinds of user behavior. We get crazy amounts of data like you know, gyroscope, battery life, how you actually move between uh, the app as a user, all the actual play data from the backend servers. So we're, we're pulling all that in and looking for anomalies across. And sometimes it's not any one thing, but the fact that you flagged 47 different uh, you know, models as a, as, a, as a potential suspicious user, that in itself, the sum of all parts is like one in a hundred billion chance that you're, that you're real. So there's like a lot of uh, sort of intricacies to it, but at the end of the day, we're, we don't really leverage the blockchain for fraud detection, uh, but we do um, have a blockchain that can do audit, but that is like a different part of our business. Like, it's like less than 5% of our business. Like most of our business is, is fraud detection and our partners truly have shifted to where instead of doing audit, we're solving a much equally or larger problem in fraud uh, with DSPs as our customers and all the other music incumbents who are struggling to, to deal with this. I mean, they're not trying to be the best at policing fraud. They're trying to deliver an amazing user experience to people listening to music. And unfortunately, the music industry grew so quickly that it's become a soft target and you have a bunch of this financially motivated fraud just extracting value from all the participants. I had no idea that there was so much fraud in the music industry, actually. Maybe you can walk me through, or our audiences too, because I'm. Um, what is the financial motivation like? Is it just because like an artist get pay, get pay, gets paid like, I don't know, five cent royalties for every time of like his, their music is played or their song is played? Is that like what the, like the financial motivation is for the bots? Yeah, that's, it's a good question. And it's, there's sort of two primary motivators to engage in, in streaming fraud. Um, so we would think, you know, based on what we've seen, probably 80% of it is financially motivated. And then maybe another 20% or so is motivated by um, a desire to enhance the perception of your own success. And so they both use similar tools, but let's talk about the sort of financial motivation first. Um, if you think about streaming revenues, you know, the streaming service collects both uh, subscription revenues from you know every customer, but then also advertising revenues. And for the purpose of this, just think they think of them all as getting pooled into one big pot that gets paid out to all the content owners. The DSPs on average pay about 65 cents on every dollar that they collect back out to the content owners. And so if you're one of the major music labels, of which there are three, or one of the major independent labels, you might expect your market share to be 20, 30% of that sort of aggregate pot. Streaming fraud comes along and maybe they peel off two, three, four, five percent of the aggregate market share for a period. It diminishes everybody else's share of the pie and it's a fixed share, right? 65 cents on every dollar, total pool of dollars that's that period's you know revenues collected. So it's it's really simple from a sort of why would you do this standpoint? As long as you're able to generate streams on a platform, you're able to pull dollars out. Um, now, how you generate those streams, there's varying degrees of sophistication and success. But it's eminently doable because anybody can put music onto a streaming service and anybody in theory can create a bunch of accounts and target the songs they've put on with listening from those accounts and extract the, the royalties. And so in that sense, it's like, it, it's, I think if you're in the business of fraud on the internet, it's worth trying because it's a new revenue pool that as of you know 10 years ago didn't exist and is now many tens of billions of dollars annually. Um, I think it was 26 billion in 2022. Um, 26 was total industry revenues. I think about 13 was was streaming. Um, so it's a big pool of money on the internet that is you know, a relatively soft target. 
And in some ways it's a soft target because it's a consumer facing application. And so the platform's incentive is to make it as easy as possible, as frictionless to get onto their platform, which, you know, by design means if someone doesn't, you know, isn't a normal user, but is actually in the creator of a bot farm, they can also use the same on-ramps as a regular consumer would to create, you know, create accounts and, and extract royalties. So that's your like financially motivated, there's money in a big pot on the internet and a relatively soft target, and it's fairly easy to pull the dollars out. So they do. Um, the other 20% are folks who are like, you know, there's 100,000 songs a week uploaded to Spotify or something in that range. Uh, it's really hard to break through the noise. I'm an aspiring artist. I'm an artist in the middle of my career. I have a good following, but I want to be great. Even for some huge artists, they have a similar mindset. They want to be number one. Um, why not use some artificial streams to, you know, give the appearance that I'm more successful than I am? And I think in a lot of those cases, or at least what we see is it's not necessarily the artist waking up one day and saying, I'm going to go out, find a streaming farm operator, contract with them and have them juice my numbers. It ends up being someone in their camp or, you know, a marketing services firm that they thought was doing playlist strategy and is actually just selling bots behind the scenes. Um, so there's a lot of that. It's it's a smaller percentage of the overall um, you know, sort of total, um, but it is something that we see with sort of some regularity and you hear more about it. Um, around the artist community, both intentionally and unintentionally. So those are the two big buckets. There's a lot of different tactics that go under it, but financial fraud, perception fraud, um, everything else sort of flows from that. And we talked, you know, about fraud. Do you think that is the biggest challenge in the industry now? I think it's the, yeah, I think it's one of the, yes, it's uh, at least top two. <laughs> like the other there's one? a lot of, a lot of discussion about AI generated music and how much that affects, uh, you know, if there's a hundred thousand songs coming up a, a day or, uh, yeah, a week, is a it a month? What is it? A week. Um, then, uh, there's a hundred songs going up a week and you have a bunch of AI generated tracks. How much does that dilute the content owners uh, from all those streams and things going to that? And should they be treated as the same as real music or not? So there's like an existential question about AI generation and generative music and whether or not former artists should get paid or whatever. So that's like another one, but I would say that's the second, that's an equally big problem to what we're solving. I think ours is like a short-term tangible, like to me, that is a strategy, long-term five to 10 year problem. The problem we have today is there are people stealing, you know, billion plus dollars uh, from the industry. And that's actually money that should be going to labels and real artists. Um, and so like there, there is a massive problem right now. And I think it's a problem that everyone's key to address. Uh, so yeah, definitely one of the biggest issues for the entire industry. And now everyone's finally waking up to it. And you know, we first started, we thought probably one to 3%. Like, I think we were floored when we saw how big the problem was. And now a lot of the rights owners are seeing how much we're adjusting their shares back. And they realize how big this problem can really be. Like how, like how long is the, is the yarn? Like no one really knows how deep this is. Um, and we just keep kind of like pulling it in and fighting and fighting and fighting. And it's like whack-a-mole because we cut one way down and they find a new way in. And so hopefully we just harden our defenses enough that honestly, the music industry becomes the harder target and, you know, fraudsters move to a different industry. And that's kind of the, the goal. I don't think we ever eradicate it entirely, but maybe we make it just difficult that some other industry seems like it's an easier an easier target than us. Right. Um, and do you have an estimate? You said billions of dollars. Is that like a, an estimate of the fraud that's going on in the music industry? I mean, yeah, it's, if it's 
13, 14 billion in streaming revenues last year and it's 10%, then it's 1.3 billion. I mean, Yikes. yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah. lot. I didn't expect number. that. Yeah. You, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it and growing. And growing. I mean, the industry is growing. The, the, the sort of secular trends for the music industry are pretty positive. Um, so that top line number is going to keep getting bigger. And if you don't find a way to curb uh, fraud and abuse, then the fraud number will also benefit from those same secular trends. Gosh, sometimes I think I'm in the wrong industry. <laughs> I mean, with AI, it's easier than ever to become a musician. Not after the call, you can... Uh, um. Yeah, the, the numbers are similar in the digital marketing space, you know, for all the DSPs and, and running ad traffic. It's also like, I don't know, some sort of one to two billion dollars a year in terms of fraud and bot traffic. So, um, so yes, the similar numbers in, in my industry as well. Um, we should probably clarify for your audience that DSP in music means music streaming service like Spotify and Apple. Oh, and Okay. Pandora and SoundCloud and DSP in your world probably means like demand side platform, right? And yes. you're thinking about an ad service. Yeah. So okay, I was that's a good point. Um I was also suck and they mean two totally different things. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I was wasn't sure if they like, you know, because they're kind of doing similar things, right? They're like serving yeah. up ads or serving up music, right? And so I yeah. thought maybe they were kind of similar platforms in the back in the back end, maybe doing different things, but kind of but I, I yes, now I understand. Now I understand your point. Um, well, switching gears a little bit from the company or what you guys do, but do uh, you want to share an interesting or funny story about your guys' uh, engagement or relationship, um, having run the business together? What's our funniest story that we want to tell people? About? <laughs> Since like like I said in the past, like I've never had more than one person on the yeah. podcast, so it's usually like can't really share a funny story. But because it's the two of you, I'm gonna. Want to put your feet to the fire? <laughs> I think the funnest thing I remember the the one for me that's maybe more wholesome is when we sec <laughs> when we secured uh so the former prime minister of Canada is on our board uh Stephen Harper. Oh, is this Justin Trudeau? <laughs> no, the the right on Stephen Harper. Yeah, and um now we have the the privilege of traveling with him and being really engaged. He's actually an incredible you know, asset to our team. When we first secured that. Uh, you know, for him to join. I mean, it took a lot of meetings and Morgan really went deep there with a lot of you know, political contacts to try and set the meeting up. But I remember leaving the coffee in San Francisco uh, and literally Morgan and I were skipping down the street. We must have looked like the weirdest group of people professionally dressed skipping. Like it was the funniest thing. I, we, I don't think I've ever been so happy that we like landed somebody that could be so helpful to our business. Uh, and at that time, we were really looking at international. People were saying, why do you have like a PM, you know, on your team? We were looking at international expansion and being able to go into places like India and having somebody that was a partner that could quickly connect us to the family offices, quickly connect us to the government regulatory bodies and how we could really take hold. And in terms of like, if you think about fraud detection or uh, accuracies, like all that endemic music needs to be protected in some way. So how do you help those countries protect their culturally relevant music? It's something we talk about a lot in Canada. That's why certain can like radio stations have to play a certain amount of Canadian music. Um, it's something that's important for uh, keeping culture in those regions. And so having a, somebody like a PM be able to walk us in and help us short circuit that was incredibly um, powerful. And so, but again, how do you get to a, a former prime minister? I mean, like Morgan had worked with him a bunch, but, you know, if you'd added up all the time he'd spent with him, it was probably small bits. You get five minutes here, five minutes there, five minutes here. So 
I don't know. To me, that was like the biggest. I just when you ask about our moment together, I don't think he could have ever seen us more aligned, like skipping down the street. I mean, we're holding hands, but in my vision, we were. <laughs> like I don't know. It was like just super crazy. No, that's that's a good one. I, I actually, that's, now that you say it out loud, that's probably one of our one of our most enjoyable moments. Um, I don't have a great story. I mean, I'm trying to think of like a. You can edit this in post, I'm sure. Um, I'm trying to think of a really good one. I mean, the funniest thing to me is that, you know, for two guys who really wanted to work together, uh, I moved to LA and a week or so later, Andrew moved to Canada um, after spending, you know, eight years not living with or near each other, deciding it would be great to, you know, spend some more time together. We pack up and move to LA and then Andrew gets a job uh, and moves to Vancouver. And so we end up starting, even though we wanted to work together, we end up starting the company from LA and Vancouver, respectively, although both of us were in, weren't in our actual homes. Um, so that was kind of fun at the beginning. It was just, you know, trading places and then starting the business together that way. But I think the, the, the skipping together down the, <laughs> down the street in San Francisco takes the cake. I'd say so. Yeah, for sure. Especially having, you know, the former prime minister of Canada on your board. That's pretty, that's a pretty good story. Um, yeah, we've, it's we've been very fortunate to have um, some really, really, really impressive and capable and, you know, aligned people join our team. Um, PM is is one of uh, of a few that I think are, you know, sort of superpowers that we've been fortunate to be able to develop. Um, so something to be said for, you know, believing in something and having conviction and being willing to go and ask people who have more experience and a bigger network than you do if they're willing to be part of it. Um, funny how often I will say yes I will say that's planned though when Morgan and I first started the company we actually went through and dialed out and said okay we we know we want up to five advisors to start what are their roles and we didn't want to go get all five at once but we identified who that person could be what their background would be so an expert in copyright an expert in like artist and label management an expert in the sort of regulatory environment so we actually had this dialed out with like a description of what that person would look like if we ever run into them. And so as we started building VTAP and coming across these people, um, we would build relationships with them and say, hey, they're a perfect fit for the thing that we already decided we needed. So we had this like mental model and actual written sort of descriptions of everybody that would be our ideal fit as an advisor. And as those people came into our lives and we developed relationships with them uh, and trust, we started adding them. So. I think part is like just being willing to ask, you know, bring yourself to the party. The other part was, you know, having the forethought to think through that even if we've done a couple of companies on our own, everybody needs sort of an advisor mentor. I, I, I liken it to, you know, if you look at me now, I don't look like a world-class athlete, but I used to be pretty fit and I know what to do at the gym, but that doesn't mean I still show up to the gym and do it. So like you have a trainer for a reason, that's to scream at you to do one more rep to make sure you're doing the right things. And to sort of like put you through a program that you probably know already, but you still probably won't do if they're not sitting there. And so I think part of having great advisors is telling you what you're missing. Sometimes you're too close to the problem to see it. It's partly um, them being able to access and help you on strategy or open doors that you couldn't otherwise open or short circuit a year worth of business development because of the relationships they have and the sort of um, strength of credibility to be able to say, hey, you should trust these guys and pass that credibility on to you. And so I think that, you know, it was really smart. I think that's the first time I'd ever done that in a company where we had sat down and actually identified who our advisor, like what roles our advisor would fit. 
And I think that really helped because we would see it and we would look at each other and just know this person's a perfect fit for this. And, uh, and that was really helpful in terms of, of forethought. Great. What's, um, what's in store next? What are you guys working on? Projects, new initiatives? I mean, we've got a we got a bunch of work to do this year. Uh, you know, we're I would say we're leading our category, but that doesn't mean we won it yet. So um, I think this year is is one of sort of winning the market, being heads down, focused on what's in front of us, and um, really just cementing our place as the standard for what we do in fraud detection in the music business. Um, and then I think there's lots of opportunities to grow from there. But you know, we we know we have an opportunity right now. Our uh, the sort of models we've trained, the data set we've amassed, it's its all sort of coming together at the right moment. And now we have to just go keep winning, um, winning business and sorry, winning new business and, uh, and just, and just delivering great results for our customers. Cause ultimately, I mean, that's the thing that makes or breaks businesses. So, um, I'd love to tell you about some incredible new initiative, but actually this year is like block tackle, let's be successful in what we know we can be. Um, and then we can grow from there. But there's there's a lot of good work to be done. Andrew, you uh, any other thoughts? No, I totally agree with Morgan. I didn't think I needed to double down on it. Okay. But yeah, it's just all all the core things. You know, like uh, I think we have a chance to run the table. Like we can be the industry incumbent. We can have a massive market share globally. Uh, I think we will have that um, at this point in the industry. You you know. People cite us as the source of truth for a lot of numbers and use us regularly for context. And so I think um, I think we're well on our way to becoming an industry leader, but we're leading, but in, in terms of be becoming like the actual uh, service across everything and, and cementing that position. So as Morgan said, this year is really about blocking and tackling execution, I guess is the word I could think of, like executing on what we have in front of us, uh, delivering the results that everyone's used to seeing from us, but in scale and being able to, um, you know, do that with high proficiency and, and, uh, with great customer, customer success. So that's, that's the, you know, blocking and tackling this year. And then hopefully next year we address other potential verticals or use cases or whatever. Great. I love hearing that. And then last question before we wrap up, it's always, I love this wild card question. Um, what is your prediction for the industry? And that could be specifically your industry, or it could be, I don't know, longevity, self-driving cars, terraforming Mars, whatever you, whatever's top of mind. <laughs> you have one? I got to think about this for a second. Um, no, 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 no thinking. Just, just whatever's on your mind, go for it. <laughs> Okay, so this won't be, uh, this is not going to be uh, highly favorable, but I think that uh, my prediction is that everyone that gets involved in Web3 with music, you know, I'm everyone's weird crypto friend. So I think anyone that's trying to sell royalties or do these things is going to be a tough go. So I think there's obviously the market's declined. So when I think about a lot of the stuff that I've seen recently for the music industry, it's a lot around, you know, especially with the hype of blockchain and Web3. And there's been a lot of people who bought worthless NFTs and have bought things with no utility. And ultimately, I think the fans are holding the back on that one. So my prediction is, I think over the next year or two, fans smarten up and that the use of Web3 and blockchain is going to have to have some utility or some value to end users other than just being a pretty piece of art because I'm a fan and I collected it. Um, and so I think, I think there's been too much of that. So I would say... Uh, 
you know, that's my prediction for the industry is less Web3 crap and hopefully more positive Web3, uh, you know, frameworks or, or utilities that for fans, because for the last year and a half, it's been like, buy my album art, you know, it's cool and, and you'll get some royalty back, but there's no one actually tracking that. And I've yet to see a royalty tracking application provide. I've yet to see a Web3 royalty actually pay anyone back. I don't know if that will happen, but, you know, I'm, I think that'll go away. That's my prediction. I like that one. Um, I won't go music. I, I've been just tinkering around a little bit with the uh, uh, chat GPT or GPT-4 or whatever. And, and I'm more and more convinced every day that uh, some version of, you know, an AI assistant is going to write the first draft of everything for us in the future. I mean, I think we're all going to edit and, you know, add the industry context that's sort of specialized. But um, to me, it feels like every press release, every you know, bit of marketing copy every, you know, at some point, you know, potentially even the first draft of emails um, is going to be written by someone. And so the question then becomes, okay, or written by an AI, I mean, so then the question becomes, what am I going to do with all this uh, sort of spare drafting time? Uh, because it writes a lot faster than than we do. Um, Man, I hope that comes true. I do. I'm convinced. <laughs> Today I asked, uh, we're, we're, this is a total tangent, but we're, we're going to a wedding in Italy later this year. And uh, I asked for an itinerary for what we should do for a day in Rome. And it gave me back just a brilliant schedule from 7.30 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. Restaurant recommendations, places to stop, little descriptive details about each place along the way. Genius. And, and I mean, that's like, I think just the, just the scratching the surface of, of sort of the potential of the first draft of everything. That's funny. Did you get that idea from Andrew Chen? Probably. I read it somewhere. Because he posted, he asked, uh, I'm sure it's a trend, but he was like, I'm going from A to B. Can you please tell me all the small towns and things I'm missing in this time period? And it wrote out an itinerary for him also. And I thought that was super clever. That's awesome. Wow, uh, that yeah. was crazy. Chat GPT is amazing <laughs> for all of these little things that we would never think that like, we would need, but actually we do need all of them. <laughs> yeah. And then it's so easy and you don't have to like do all the research. So someone asked is shaking his fist. Like I was just too early. Too early. <laughs> well, too early and not technologically savvy, I guess. <laughs> I would say. Sorry, Jeeves. Yeah. <laughs> well, on well, that note, um, last question is how can an audience get in touch with you? Uh you can find on all of the social platforms. I think we're at BeatDap on Instagram and Twitter, and we're uh, on LinkedIn as BeatDap. Uh, our emails are our first names at BeatDap.com. So Morgan and Andrew at BeatDap.com. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. And obviously, you can drop us a line off our website as well. But yeah, feel free to reach out. We love talking to people, so no worries. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, fantastic conversation. Learned a lot about the music industry and the fraud. And I really yeah, appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks, well, for having thanks me. so much.